Chapter 13 of Murder in the Gunroom. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Murder in the Gunroom by H. Beam Piper. Chapter 13. Rand found Gladys alone in the library. As she rose to greet him, he came close to her, gesturing for silence with finger and lips. There's a perfect hell of a mess, he whispered. Somebody murdered Arnold Rivers last night. She looked at him in horror. Murdered? Who was it? How did it? I haven't time to talk about that right now, he told her. Stephen Gresham and Pierre Jarret are on their way here, and I'd like you to keep the servants, and particularly Walters, out of earshot of the gunroom while they're here. It seems that a number of the best pistols have been stolen from the collection, some time between the death of Mr. Fleming and the time I saw the collection yesterday. Stephen and Pierre are going to help me find out just what's been taken. I have an idea they might have been sold to Rivers. That may have been why he was killed, to prevent him from implicating the thief. You think somebody here? The servants? she asked. I can't see how it could have been an outsider. The stuff wasn't all taken at once. It must have been moved out a piece at a time, and worthless pistols moved in and hung on the racks to replace valuable pistols taken. He had left the library door purposely open. When the doorbell rang, he heard it. I'll let them in, he said. You go and head Walters off. Ran hurried to the front door and admitted Gresham and Pierre, hustling them down the hall into the library and up the spiral to the gunroom, while Gladys went to the foot of the front stairs. Through the open gunroom door, Ran could hear her speaking to Walters, as though sending him on some errand to the rear of the house. He closed the door and returned to the others. We'll have to make it fast, he said. Mrs. Fleming can't hold the butler off all day. Let's start over here and go around the racks. They began at the left with the wheel locks. Pierre put his finger immediately on the shabby and disreputable specimen Rand had first noticed. Phew! Is that one a stinker, he said. What used to be there was a nice late 16th or early 17th century North Italian pistol, all covered with steel filigree work. A real beauty, much better than average. Those Turkish atrocities, Gresham pointed out, they're filling in for a pair of Lazzarino Caminazzo snaphounces that Lane Fleming paid several hundred for back in the mid-thirties, and didn't pay a cent too much for even then. Worth an easy thousand now. Remember the pair of Caminazzo flintlocks illustrated in Pollard's Short History of Firearms? These were even better, and snaphounces. Well, you go over the collection, Rand told them. Note down anything you find missing. He handed them a pad of paper and a pencil from the desk. I have something else to do for a few minutes. With that, he left them scrutinizing the pistols on the wall and went to the workbench in the corner, drawing the thirty-six Colt from under his waistband. Working rapidly, he dismounted it, taking off the barrel and cylinder, and cleaned it thoroughly before putting it together again. Pierre and Gresham had just started on the Colts when he slipped the revolver out of sight and rejoined them. It took over a half hour to finish. When they had gotten completely around the collection, Rand had a list of twenty-six missing items, including four cased sets. At a conservative estimate, the missing pistols were worth ten to twelve thousand dollars, dealer's list value. The stuff that had been moved in to replace them might have a value of two or three hundred but no serious collector would buy any of it at any price. There had been no attempt to replace the cased items. 
the cases had been merely rearranged on the table to avoid any conspicuous vacancies. "'See that thing?' Pierre asked, tapping a small twenty-five Webley and Scott automatic with his finger. Rand looked at it. It had been fitted with an English-made silencer. "'That thing,' Pierre said, "'is the one illustrated in Pollard's book. The identical pistol. It used to be in the Pollard collection.' Lane had a lot of stuff from some famous collections, Gresham said. Pollard collection, Sawyer collection, Fred Hines collection, Meeks collection, even the old Mark Field collection. That was sold at Libby Galleries in 1911. His own could rank with any of them. Think you can get any of this stuff back? I hope so. By the way, where does this fellow Umholtz, the fabricator of spurious Whitneyville Walker cults, hang out? I believe he ought to be looked into. Say, that's an idea, Pierre ejaculated. He might have bought the pistols instead of Rivers. Why, he has a gun shop in Kingsville on Route 22, about 15 miles west of here, just this side of the village. He had a big sign along the road, and his shop's in the barn behind the house. I'll have to check up on him, but first I want to see if any of this stuff's at Rivers' shop. I won't ask you to come along, he told Gresham. No use you sticking your head into the lion's mouth. I've talked the state police temporarily off your trail, but I still have Farnsworth to worry about. He'd like to prosecute a big corporation lawyer, if he thought he had any chance of getting a conviction, Pierre said. Make a nice impression on the proletarian vote in the south end of the county. You're a member of the Mohawk Club in New Belfast, aren't you? Rand asked Gresham. Well, go there and stay there for a couple of days till the heat's off. Pierre, you can come with me to Rivers. I'll run you home in my car when we're through. Gresham let himself out the front door. Pierre and Rand went out through the garage and got into Rand's car. You have any idea so far about who could have killed Rivers? the ex-marine asked, as they coasted down the drive to the highway. I haven't even the start of an idea, Rand said. He ran briefly over what he knew, or at least those items which were likely to become public knowledge soon. From what I've observed at the shop, and from what I know of Rivers' character, I'd think he'd been in some kind of crooked deal with somebody, and got double-crossed, or else the other man caught Rivers double-crossing him. Or else Rivers and somebody else had some secret in common, and the other man wanted a monopoly on it and killed Rivers as a security measure. Think it might be the Fleming pistols? That depends. I'll have to see whether any of the Fleming pistols turn up anywhere in Rivers' former possession. Personally, I've about decided that the man who was drinking with Rivers killed him. There aren't any indications that anybody else was in the shop afterward. If that's the case, I doubt if the killer was Walters. You know what a snobbish guy Rivers was, and from what I know of him, he seems to have had a thoroughly Aristotelian outlook. He identified individuals with class labels. Walters, of course, would be identified with the label Butler, and I can't imagine Rivers sitting down and drinking with a butler. He would only drink with people whom he thought of as his equals, that is, people whom he identified with class labels of equal social importance to his own labels of antiquarian and businessman. That sounds like Korzybski, Pierre said, as they turned onto Route 19 in the village and headed east. You've read Science and Sanity? Rand nodded. Yes, I first read it in the 1933 edition back about 1936. 
I've been rereading it every couple of years since. The principles of general semantics come in very handy in my business, especially in criminal investigation work like this. A consciousness of abstracting, a realization that we can only know something about a thin film of events on the surface of any given situation, and a habit of thinking structurally and of individual things, instead of verbally and of categories, saves a lot of blind alley chasing, and they suggest a great many more avenues of investigation than would be evident to one whose thinking is limited by intentional verbal categories. Yes, I find general semantics helpful in my work, too, Pierre said. I can use it in plotting a story. Uh-oh. The gentleman of the press, Rand said, looking ahead as the car approached the river's house and shop. There hasn't been a good sensational murder story for some time. This is a gift from the gods. A swarm of cars were parked in front and beside the red brick house. Among them, Rand spotted a gold-lettered green sedan of the new Belfast Dispatch and Evening Express, a black coupe bearing the blazonry of the new Belfast Mercury, cars from a couple of papers at Lewisburg, the state capital, and cars from papers as far distant as Pittsburgh, Buffalo, and Cincinnati. In front of the shop, a motley assemblage of journalists was interviewing and photographing an undersized runt in a tan Chesterfield topcoat and a gray Homburg hat, whom they were addressing as Mr. Farnsworth. The district attorney of Scott County had a mustache which failed miserably to make him look like Tom Dewey. He impressed Rand as the sort of offensive little squirt who compensates for his general insignificance by bad manners and loud-mouthed self-assertion. Corporal Cavalline, standing in the doorway of the shop, caught sight of Rand and his companion as they got out of the car and came to meet them, hustling them around the crowd and into the shop before anybody could notice and recognize them. That was a good tip about the telephone, he said softly. Mick checked at the Rosemont Exchange. Rivers got a long-distance call from Topeka last night, 10.15 to 10.17. We got the night-long-distance operator out of bed, and she confirmed it. Rivers took the call himself. He gets a lot of long-distance calls in the evenings. She knew his voice. He corrected himself, shifting to the past tense, and glancing as he did at the chalk outline on the floor, now scuffed by many feet and, and the dried bloodstains. You say this puts Gresham in the clear? Absolutely, Rand assured him. He was at home from 9.22 on. He introduced Pierre Jarret and explained their mission. You find anything except what's here in the shop? Only Rivers owned 38 Smith & Weston in his room, and a lot of pistols out in the garage that look like junk to me, Cavaline said. I'll show them to you. Rand nodded. Pierre, you look around the shop. I'll see what this other stuff is. He followed Cavaline through a door at the rear of the shop, the same one through which Cecil Gillis had carried the Kentucky rifle the afternoon before. Beside Rivers' car there was a long workbench in the garage and piles of wood and cardboard cartons and stacks of newspapers and a barrel full of excelsior, all evidently used in preparing arms for shipment. There was also a large pile of old pistols and a number of long arms. Rand pawed among the pistols. They were, as the state police corporal had said, all junk, the sort of things a dealer has to buy at times in order to get something really good. Many of them had been partially dismantled for parts. 
When he was certain that the heap of junk weapons didn't conceal anything of value, he returned to the shop. Pierre was waiting for him by Rivers' desk. He shook his head. Not a thing, he reported. I found a couple of out-and-out -out fakes and about ten or fifteen that had been altered in one way or another, and a lot of reblued stuff, but nothing from Fleming's collection. What did you find? Rand laughed. I found Rivers' scrap heap and some pistols that probably contributed parts to some of the other stuff you found, he said. Of course, all we can say is that the stuff isn't here. Rivers could have bought it and stored it outside somewhere, but even so, I'm not taking the Fleming butler too seriously as a suspect for the murder. What's this about Fleming's butler? a voice broke in. Have you been withholding information from me? Rand turned to find that Farnsworth had left the press conference in front and crept sold up on him from behind. I withheld the theory, which seems to have come to nothing, he replied. Cavaline told the D.A. who Rand was. He's cooperating with us, he added. Sergeant McKenna instructed us to give him every consideration. It seems that a number of valuable pistols were stolen from the collection of the late Lane Fleming, Rand said. We suspected that the butler had stolen them and sold them to Rivers. I thought it possible that he might also have killed Rivers to silence him about the transaction. None of the stolen items have turned up here, so there is nothing to connect the thefts with the death of Rivers. Good heavens, you certainly didn't suspect a prominent and respected citizen like Mr. Rivers of receiving stolen goods, Farnsworth demanded, aghast. Who respects him? Rand hooted. Rivers was a notorious swindler. He had that reputation among arms collectors all over the country. He was expelled from membership in the National Rifle Association for misrepresentation and fraud. Why, he even swindled Lane Fleming on a pair of fake pistols a week or so before Fleming's death. And the very reason why your man Olson was inclined to suspect Stephen Gresham was that he had had trouble with Rivers about a crooked deal Rivers had put over on him. Fortunately, Mr. Gresham has since been cleared of any suspicion, but... Who says he's been cleared? Farnsworth snapped. He's still a suspect. Sergeant McKenna says so, Corporal Cavaline declared. He has been cleared. I guess we just didn't get around to telling you about that. He went on to explain about the long-distance call that had furnished Stephen Gresham's alibi. And Gresham was at home from 9.22 on, Rand added. There are eight witnesses to that. His wife and daughter, myself, Captain Jarret here, and his fiancée, Miss Lawrence, Philip Cabot, Adam Treherne, Colin McBride. Farnsworth looked bewildered. Why wasn't I told about that, he demanded sulkily. Sergeant McKenna's been too busy, and I didn't think of it, Cavaline said insolently. I'm not supposed to report to you anyhow. Why didn't your man Olson tell you? He was with us when we checked with the telephone company. Farnsworth tried to ignore that by questioning Pierre about the time of Gresham's arrival home, then turned to Rand and wanted to know what the latter's interest in the case was. Rand told him about his work in connection with the Fleming collection, producing Humphrey Goode's letter of authorization. Farnsworth seemed impressed in about the same way as the coroner, Kirchner, but he was still puzzled. But I understood that you had been retained by Stephen Gresham to investigate this murder, he said. So you did talk to Olson after I saw him, Rand pounced. Odd he didn't mention this telephone thing. Why, yes, that's true. My agency handles all sorts of business. The two operations aren't mutually exclusive. 
For a while, I even thought they might be related, but now... He shrugged. Well, you believe now that Rivers had nothing to do with the pistols you say were stolen from the Fleming collection? Farnsworth asked. Rand shook his head ambiguously. Farnsworth took that for a negative answer to his question, as he was intended to. And you say Mr. Gresham has been completely cleared of any suspicion of complicity in this murder? Mr. Rand's helping us. We want him to stick around till the case is closed, Corporal Cavaline threw in, perceiving the drift of Farnsworth's questions. He and Sergeant McKenna have worked together before. He's given us a lot of good tips. You understand, Rand took over, Mr. Gresham didn't retain me merely to help him clear himself. I don't accept that kind of retainers. I was retained to find the murderer of Arnold Rivers, and I intend to continue working on this case until I do. I hope that the same friendly spirit of mutual cooperation will exist between your office and my agency as exists between me and the state police. I certainly don't want to have to work at cross-purposes with any of the regular law enforcement agencies. Oh, certainly, of course. Farnsworth didn't seem to like the idea, but there was no apparent opening for objection. He and Rand exchanged mendacious compliments, pledged close cooperation, and did practically everything but draw up and sign a treaty of alliance. Then Farnsworth and Corporal Cavaline accompanied Rand and Pierre Jarret to the front door. Some of the reporters who were ravening outside must have spotted Rand as he had entered. They were all waiting for him to come out and set up a monstrous ululation when he appeared in the doorway. With Farnsworth beaming approval, Rand assured the press that he was no more than a mere spectator, that the state police and the efficient district attorney of Scott County had the situation well in hand, and that an arrest was expected within a matter of hours. Then he and Pierre hurried to his car and drove away. End of chapter 13